So this practice, Vipassana meditation, the translation of Vipassana most common is insight. So this is called insight practice. So I thought I might talk about one of the main insights that the Buddha uh, mentions and that arises from this practice. But first, uh, what do we mean by insight? Just very briefly. Because, you know, and have you had any yet? Are you going to have any? I mean, how does this, you know, drudging up and down, lifting, moving, placing, have anything to do with insight? So all we mean by insight is really simply, I would say, a shift of, per- of perception. That we see, recognize, see, I'm using see as uh, metaphorically for, you know, intuitive knowing, and not necessarily visually seeing. But we see, we recognize the aspect of our experience, of our mind, of our body, of the way the world is. We recognize it differently from the normal way that we go about without even consciously realizing it sometimes, recognizing or interpreting ourselves and life. And so in terms of uh, insights that come in practice, it's not that if we practice hard enough we'll be born into a different and better reality. Now, this is it. This is the reality. We wake up from one interpretation into another, but the reality, like I said last time, the Buddha, Buddha's awakening didn't get him, you know, into another earth on another plane. He still had to walk barefoot around India, and that's just how it was. So the insight is we simp- a simple shift of perception, but that's huge. Because when we're not recognizing an experience accurately, the way we respond, the way we interpret, the way we act in relationship to that doesn't jibe, right? Because we don't have the accurate information. And so what shifts when we recognize accurately is that, oh, our patterns, what I mentioned last time, where we're trying to make ourselves happy and it doesn't work because we don't have the right information, those patterns change, not out of willpower, but just because it's so obvious, you know, the main one of those patterns being clinging, of course. But when we recognize with wisdom, we see more accurately, the wisdom is the recognition, the knowing of that. And even though the way we see the old way comes back again, you know, there's been, there's been a change, there's been a shift in the mind stream. It's like we know it's not only this way. You know, like those magic eye, you know, those magic eye design graphics. They used to have whole books of them that they're just graphics of two different colors with no, um, no conceptual picture that you could recognize. But if you look at them long enough with an unfocused, relaxed gaze, a kind of a, looks like a 3D image springs out of it. You know, like hockey players or NCAA basketball players, UNC, losing. Or, <laughs> you know, something like that. And then when you, when you start staring again or you look away and look back, that's gone. And you just have the little yellow and blue graphics. But, but once you know that's there, something switches, you know it. Whereas someone who's never been able to see it, you can tell them about it. And they're like, yeah, you know, right, sure. My mother could never see it. 
and it would make her nuts. It was that we'd go in malls, and it was a time when it was really popular. There'd be these giant, you know, posters of these, and she couldn't stop looking at it, and she'd just be going nuts. And I'd say, "Don't you see the dinosaurs?" No, I don't see the dinosaurs. <laughs> and it doesn't help someone else, but but you can kind of help someone learn how to look. That's what we're doing here. And once you know, I saw the the flying saucer. You know, if guy comes up and says, "No, you didn't." Well, if I'm clear in my knowing, if I have confidence in my knowing, in my understanding, he can say whatever he wants. I know I saw it. That's the shift, you know, and we can respond differently. So really, that's what, that's really all insight is. And then it shifts back, and so it kind of, we're, we're moving between the two different ways of perceiving. And this doesn't have to be a problem at all. So... One of the most central insights that the Buddha speaks of, actually perceptions, is that of impermanence, anicca in the Pali, of the changing, impermanent nature of all experience, all experience, all mental, all physical experience. That's the the catch there, <laughs> the all. So, and it's like, of the different um, perceptions, the misperception we have is that we perceive the permanent in what is not permanent, and we don't realize that that's happening. So this is a quotation. This is from the Sutta, from the Buddha. One, he says, these two different suttas, he's talking to his monks and he says, there is no form, meaning no matter, no solidity, our bodies, any other form. There's no form, there's no feeling tone, which is like the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling tone. There's no perception. Perception is simply the recognition of experience, the naming, the labeling. There are no formations of mind, volitional formations, moods, thoughts, and no consciousness that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, and that will remain the same just like eternity itself. And then he took up, the Buddha, he took up a little bit of soil under his fingernail. He's outside. He just took up this little bit of soil, and he said, there's not even this much form consciousness, volitional formations, perception, feeling tone, that is stable, permanent, unchanging, not even this much. He said, if there was this much, even this much that was stable, that didn't change, that was absolutely permanent, then this living of the holy life for the complete destruction of suffering could not be discerned. But because there is not even this much that is permanent, that is stable. Then the living of this holy life for the complete destruction of suffering is discerned, is possible. I I find that a radical statement. Not even this much. Are we comfortable with that? Does the heart leap up and say, yeah, great, you know? Okay, then his other, the other quotation, I mean, there's millions of quotations through the suttas about impermanence, but again, he's saying, bhikkhus, 
when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated. So that's like part of our practice actually consciously recognizing the perception of impermanence. It eliminates all sensual lust. It eliminates all ignorance. It uproots all conceit, I am. Those are like code words for complete liberation in the way the Buddha spoke. So when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it basically completely liberates our heart and mind from confusion, from suffering. It leads to that depth of wisdom, of understanding, based on just simply clear recognition of how things are. So, of course, developing, cultivating that perception, that's what we're doing in the practice, and I'll a little more point to that later in the talk, hopefully. But first I want to just talk about why is it, just bring up some questions, why is it for us, for me, what I'm saying is for me, and hopefully also it will resonate in some ways with some of you, why is it or should it be so difficult to truly know, to truly perceive, to live with the cellular understanding of impermanence? Because of all the the different um, perceptions, the different insights that the Buddha speaks about, the others being of the unreliability of all experience, and the third one being of the non-self nature of all, impermanence to me seems like intellectually, conceptually, the most accessible. I mean, when we talk about things change, nothing really stays the same, that's can you sort of agree with that? I mean, we sort of go, yeah, yeah, things change. Right? On some intellectual level, that's not you know, incredibly abstruse. We, we all intellectually know that our bodies are very different now from how they were 20 years ago. But then aren't we still shocked? <laughs> shocked! <laughs> when we go look in the morning and there's more gray hairs or the cellulite starts to come or somehow, how did I get to look like this, you know? Or see a picture of yourself, as I just did from 20 years ago. You go, oh my God, or a picture of you and all your friends from 20 years ago. I tell you, actually it's more shocking with the friends because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't change as much as, much as they did. <laughs> Uh, well, they can say the same thing, so that makes it even. But why is, why is it so shocking, you know? Every moment is changing, but this sense of what I would call in some ways the denial of impermanence or the, the, the this is the Buddha, the Buddha talks, the upside-down perception, perceiving what is permanent and what is not permanent is so... Um, well, it's comfortable. It's what we're used to. And I, I mean, there's lots of maybe reasons of habit why we don't tend to really let in on a moment by moment, I like to call it cellular level, as opposed to just the thinking level of the fact of change. So, you know, one question I used to ask myself, well, something I still do is, do I really believe, I mean, do I really know that everything, not even this much, is, is not 
stable, that everything is changing. What would it mean in my life if I really lived in and from that knowing? What would it mean? And what the mind that isn't there, but that's thinking about what that would mean, can come up with usually isn't the most cheery and pleasant thing. It's like, oh my God, everything's changing. I know that's the first noble truth, that when we're born, we're going to be separated from what we love, that we're going to have sickness, old age, and death, that nothing lasts. I know that. But thinking about every minute opening to loss, that's sort of the first thing that comes up in my mind. That's too much. Loss is too painful. And so I think that's one of the first kind of resistances. And a lot of this is, I, is actually not so conscious. Like fear of the sadness, the pain, the grief of loss. And of course, this is where we'll be going with it, the reason there's pain and grief and this real struggle with loss, of course, is actually because we've already related to experience in an uh, in a way that is not consistent with what's true. We really, really suffer when what we want or like or are comfortable with goes away. We really suffer only when we've been clinging to it, when we've been in some way relying on holding on to that experience, that person, that job, that feeling, in some way, and often it's below the level of conscious thought, we're relying on that for uh, confirmation, for self-confirmation, for a sense of comfort, for um, pleasant feeling. And that's actually huge that we're holding on and relying on stuff for pleasant feeling. For a sense of safety, for a sense of control, right? We like to know how things are and get them all nice and tidy and then have them stay that way. Like, look, like Guy's example last night of how upset his mind got when he had to walk in a different place. Uh, he's not just a weird person, you know. That's, <laughs> well, maybe he is, but that's, that's another thing. But, like, if every time you came into the hall, it was a free-for-all, you don't get to hold on to which seat you sit in. Every time you come in, you just have to take what seat's there. Now, I mean, in terms of our life, that's not really a big deal, is it? But wouldn't it be like a little, like, distressing? A little upsetting? You come in and, you know, it's bad enough in the lunchroom, you know, and that's enough of a nightmare. But if we did that everywhere, what if you didn't know which room you were going to go back to at night? What if we gave you a different job every day? What if we changed the schedule? Like, we like a little bit of consistency here, which there's nothing wrong with, but it's when we are clinging it. That's the problem with clinging. It's that it just doesn't work and it really increases, keeps us suffering a lot more. And also our instinctive fear of the feelings of loss and sadness is another thing. It's just, it's part of life. It's like, okay, sadness, loss is like this. In some ways, you know, we know we're a little bit more alive. Sure, it shows there was clinging, But it also means we don't have to just shut down and hide from seeing things clearly because, God forbid, we might feel some sadness of loss. It just runs through life. It's part of it. It can 
actually, I feel like, can we just embrace that rather than shut, either deny impermanence and just keep fighting and trying to pretend, you know, we can control and manipulate or shut down altogether and like pretend we're not clinging, pretend we don't care, pretend, you know, it's kind of, it's okay, it's pleasant, but I'm not going to really open to it because I don't want to get caught in clinging, kind of like a, a, a indifference that comes not from wisdom, but from fear or ignorance, you know. But even in the suttas, this comes up, and I, I find it quite touching. The Buddha's um, main attendant for the last 25 years of his life, uh, a monk called Ananda, he comes through in the suttas as being a really kind person. Ananda's kind of it seems to me like he's the one who sort of personalizes. You hear about all the monks and nuns, and they all hear, you know, the Buddha gives a talk, and they all get enlightened, you know, at the end of the talk. And Ananda, for 25 years, he's, he's had quite some insight, but he's not completely enlightened. And he serves the Buddha with total love, but he also serves as the intermediary. He loves the Dhamma. He loves the Buddha's teaching and the with great compassion, he's always trying to bring anyone who wants to hear the Buddha to, to, to hear him. So rather than sometimes we, we see these days with some great master or teacher and the people closer trying to keep all the other people away, with Ananda, it's just the reverse. He's always trying to get people to come and hear the teachings and wake up. You know, He's very kind. Anyway, the Buddha, three months before he was going to die, when he was 80 years old, he knew you know, what was going to happen, and he told Ananda this is going to happen. And he starts talking. Ananda was present with him most of the time. So he just starts talking. They start talking about what to do with my remains when I die and all this you know, kind of practicalities of life. And then suddenly the Buddha is sitting there talking to some other monks, and he notices Ananda's disappeared. And of course, with his what they called his divine eye, he knows what's going on. He knew where Ananda was. But he said to the other monks, where's Ananda? Where could Ananda be? Uh, Go and find Ananda for me. So they go off and look for Ananda. And where Ananda was, he went into his lodging, and he stood leaning on his doorpost crying and weeping and saying, I'm still a learner with much to do, and the teacher is passing away who is so compassionate to me. What am I going to do without my teacher? And he was just standing there weeping. Is so human, right? I just find it quite touching and encouraging in a way that it's okay. Until we're completely always seeing things the way they are with no ignorance, when we're faced with the loss of something deeply loved, there's going to be some attachment and we're going to be sad, we're going to grieve, and that's okay. That's okay. There's no reason to try and deliberately hide from things because we might feel sad. Of course, the Buddha then, you know, called him and said, Friend Ananda. And in a very loving way, he said, Enough, Ananda. You don't need to weep. He said, How many times have I told you? Things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable, subject to separation and becoming other. So how could it be that what has come together through conditions, meaning this body, will not come apart again when the conditions change? And then he went on actually to really kind of 
beam kindness and love to Ananda and praised him for all his good qualities. So it wasn't like he was like, boom, 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 you know, you jerk. He really <laughs> was meeting him with a lot of love. It's kind of a touching interaction. But it's like, this is this 25 years he'd been with the Buddha. It's just that's our natural human reaction. It's okay. There can be space for it, but let's not let it, you know, shut us down. The other um, aspect that, of course, the, the sense of losing what we're loved and familiar with in the big picture, but another aspect of impermanence that I think uh, makes it harder for us to recognize and is that this aspect, that the intensity of retreat and the moment-to-moment mindfulness really helps us to perceive more accurately, is the fact of the you could say the constancy of change. Is that a teaching um, by his Dalai Lama some years ago? I think Guy was there too. And he was talking about impermanence, as, as teachers are wont to do. And he was describing that, that even though we resist it, we mostly would all agree conditions come together like a life. It starts, then it exists for a while, and then it goes away. He said, but that's not accurate. This is the big place we get confused. We don't perceive accurately. Yes, it, conditions come together, something arises. A being is born or a mood arises, you know, or the cake is made, whatever it is. Then the persisting for a while, that's what's not accurate. Nothing is persisting for a while unchanged. The change is every moment. And thinking about it is where I think we get really uncomfortable. The sense of the total instability, total unsettledness, unreliability of anything, even though we can't with our normal senses perceive, like say, the change in this paper, it looks steady, although even that I'm doing that, you know, that's different, it's changing, the conditions are changing. But even though we don't perceive every moment, the fact that things are so much in constant flux is something that I know from my mind, it's not really comfortable with that. And I think it's from that that this sense of um, trying to control the environment, to control ourselves, to control how people behave, to control and we know what's going to happen in the future, our obsessive planning. I'm not saying we don't plan. We need to plan. I'm talking about obsessive with fear, with control, with it's got to be this way, to somehow stave off the fact of the constant shifting change, as if to open into that would be enormous suffering. But of course, it's just the reverse. The cause of our suffering here is the clinging, is the misperception, is the continuously trying to relate to any aspect of experience as if it's going to still be here just the same in the next moment. If it is, okay. But if it's not, okay. One One of my favorite quotations from the Buddha The search for a resting place is burning. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. 
The search for a resting place is burning. And that search for a resting place can be in the physical world, you know, a house, a family, a relationship, which none of this is to say there's anything wrong with that. It's the trying to hold on to these things for a security that they can't promise. That's the problem. The search for a resting place can be just being comfortable in this moment. The search for a resting place can be a kind of intensity of craving we bring to our meditation practice to get to some deep samadhi where I can rest, to get rid of this pain of this bad emotion so I can rest, to just sit somewhere else where I'm not near that noisy person so I can rest, you know, get out of the cold (laughs) so I can rest, whatever it is. He abides in peace who does not abide anywhere. So actually this sense of, and you can't will it. I'm going to say willingness, but we can't will it. The, the, just the willingness to open into not knowing. Each moment, who knows what's going to arise in the next moment. As we were saying in one of the interviews today that Krishna... Krishnamurti's line, a freedom from the known. That's actually what mindfulness is. Each moment, there's just mindful awareness, meeting whatever's happening. That's totality of presence, just for that moment, without bringing in any assumptions or concepts or ideas of what this is or what it should be or what it will be or what it was but just this complete innocence, freshness, that what Suzuki Roshi called beginner's mind, to, well, we say the breath, you sit down and say the breath, but you actually don't know if the sensations of breath is going to be the next thing that arises. We really don't know, moment by moment. I sit down and think, this sitting, I'm going to really be with the breath. And 10 minutes later, I haven't felt one breath consciously, you know? Maybe a lot of other things, maybe really conscious, maybe really present with mindfulness. But we never really know. But it's so kind of ingrained in our habits to look for security, to look for steadiness, to look for something as if we can rest. This is from, see if I can, from Pema Chodron, who I quoted last night. To be fully alive, fully human, and completely awake is to be continually thrown out of the nest. To live fully is to be always in no man's land, to experience each moment as completely new and fresh. To live is to be willing to die over and over again. From the awakened point of view, that's life. Death is wanting to hold on to what you have and to have every experience confirm you and congratulate you and make you feel completely together. Isn't that what we're trying to do with meditation? (laughs) And it just won't obey us. That's what's so great about meditation. You want it to confirm you and congratulate you and make you feel completely together, and it just stubbornly won't do that. That's why we love it. When you come into interviews and you're going, oh my God, it isn't, and we go, great, you know. I'm really in this heavy emotion. We go, good, you know. That, it's not confirming you. It's waking us up. 
So even though we say the Yama Mara is fear of death, it's actually fear of life. Being completely, continually thrown out of the nest. So another way we can look in our life, in our practice, is noticing the places that we are, and I say we are, but it's not like we're consciously sitting here thinking I'm doing this, but to notice when the mind, when the habits of mind, what it reaches for, what it holds on to, what it's perceiving as permanent or what we're holding on to to confirm us, to make us um, feel together, to confirm our life. This is from Ajahn Chah, who was a wonderful Thai forest monk. Worldly knowledge and accomplishments on whatever level still leave you in this realm of suffering. Whatever happiness there may be comes about in dependence on external things. It is a happiness, but it's not the happiness of freedom, the happiness that doesn't depend on anything. So what is it we depend on? We depend on possessions, on pleasure, on reputation, on praise, on wealth. We lean on all these things, like leaning on a rotting old tree trunk. And after we lean for too long, it breaks and falls, and we fall with it. I love Ajahn Chah. Such is worldly happiness. And I think this is kind of a delicate balance that, that we learn when we start to see all those things, reputation, wealth, sense pleasures, you know, you could say family, your job, when we realize that those are worldly happinesses and leaning on them, at some point they're going to break and fall. But the delicate balance is that doesn't mean that these things are bad or wrong or that pleasure and love and some kind of temporary happiness is not available with them. It can be. And it can be very wholesome, and it can lead to a lot of growth and a lot of good, wholesome action in the world. So it's not that we make the flip, well, everything's changing, so none of it's worth anything and kind of slide into an aversion. No. So this is delicate. It's a sense of opening into, just beginning to let in the perception of the constant change, of the fluctuation, of the fact that we are continually thrown out of the nest, and to just be willing to, to hang out in that not knowing, in that instability. That actually, it opens us up more deeply to participate in life. It doesn't shut us down, okay, who cares about that anyway, you know? The whole thing is, if you know a beautiful day is only here for a day, we really can just enjoy that day. So it's all like that. So in the mind, it might say, if I really open to this instability, life is just too fearful. You know, I won't be able to handle it. We shut down. But we shut down ahead of time out of fear. It isn't like that at all. It's actually just the reverse. The sense of the totality of presence, the immediacy when we're totally here in this moment, open to it, accepting it, just being with it for what it is without dragging in all our ideas and assumptions and concepts and it's got to stay the same and, you know, before it's even gone, we're already tightened and no. 
It's very, very different. But we can't talk ourselves into it. You know, it's, this is really where practice, the steadiness moment after moment of cultivating awareness, cultivating this simple quality of attention that's willing to be so fresh that we don't already know everything before we even start looking. I mean, we think we do. Maybe you guys don't think. I, I don't think I do consciously, but then I keep noticing I really do think I do. So this mindfulness, this is uh, from Krishnamurti, and I like this description of how a moment of just pure mindfulness can feel. When you look totally, and you could be looking at the breath, at a, a sound, at a sensation in the body, at a mood, at a thought, when you look totally, you will give your whole attention, your whole being, everything of yourself, your eyes, your ears, your nerves. You will attend with complete self-abandonment, and then there is no room for fear, no contradiction, and therefore no conflict. It has that sense of uh, what Guy was saying this morning, the collectedness of all the psychic energy, just for a moment. You don't extend it in time. Just for a moment. So present that we're not comparing or assessing or judging or fearing into the future. It's just this. Just this. That's why I keep using Semedo's language. Anger is like this. Pain is It's just this in that moment. And therefore, in that moment, there's no conflict. This sense of mindfulness, just this innocent knowing, free from, or not confused with, I would say, all the concepts and ideas that come about something that we so often confuse for the actual experience. And it's this confusing the ideas about an experience for the experience itself that keeps us in the habit of not perceiving anicca impermanence. So, well, simple example. Use physical pain because the physical sensation is just a little more, maybe grosser, a little easier to notice. There's a sensation when you're sitting, a sensation, and the First awareness of it, my knee is really hurting. So that's already a thought. That's already a concept. Knee, my knee, hurting. And I know for me, as soon as I say that, there's a visual kind of picture in my mind, almost of like my whole body and my knee down there. My eyes are closed. You know, I'm not seeing my knee, but my eyes are closed. There's a visual image of me, my knee down there. It's really hurting. And then right away, so that's a thought. Right away from that, if I don't recognize that as a, con- if I recognize that as a concept, you bring your, your attention just back into the sensation. And we say maybe it's burning or tingling. Yes, that's also a concept, burning, tingling, but it's a little less fraught with sense of self and storyline and past and future. We don't go as far down the road with my burning as we do with my bum knee that I had arthroscopic surgery on last year, and I can't believe I'm sitting here in this stupid hall. <laughs> but if I go to a chair, that's failing, so I have to sit here even, you know, way down the road. So 
bare experience would just be sensation, calm mind around it. But what we do is there's the perception of sensation. The perception leads to thoughts about it. Like I said, my knee is hurting, I have a bad knee. That perception, those thoughts, if we don't recognize it, they very quickly form a story or a view that we absolutely believe, we don't even realize it's a description of view. And that becomes the reality. So that, in the, this example, could be what I said, my, I have a bad knee, I had surgery last year, and I know if I keep sitting like this, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to my knee. I'm not saying whether it's true or not, but that's a whole view that immediately can spring up when the attention connects with burning. And I use that because it's, you can kind of see the way it moves. But take... Uh, and I'm staying in the meditation realm right now, one of the ways we don't recognize impermanence is we don't see this process, and we also, the lack of continuity of mindfulness hides impermanence. So take the same thing with, say, an emotion. You're sitting and a very familiar but difficult emotion comes up, and we each have our kind of favorite, you know, core this is really the root of who I am. Despair, or loneliness, or frustration, or fear, or depression, or whatever it might be. And it's coming, it's worry, and you're noticing where you really, I'm really mindful, here's worry, this is the story about the worry. And so we feel we're being really fresh with it, because we see the story, that's worry, but worry feels like this, and not buying the story. And then, Something else happens, you go through this, other things happen. Then you come and say, well, this is here, it's been here all day. The worry actually went away for a while. You didn't notice it at all. But then it, later, in, later in the sitting, in the next sitting, there's worry again. And so the worry is about the same thing as before, or it's about a different thing, and you notice that, and you think, well, I'm, I'm being really fresh with this. But the thought and the view that's being solidified, we may not recognize, is this worry is always here. And it's really complicated. I say, well, I say, well, didn't it go away when you were eating lunch? Well, I wasn't aware of it then because I was eating, but it was there, right? It was there waiting, and as soon as I got quiet, there was the worry. And it's as if we have a mountain of worry or despair or whatever, it's sitting down there in your gut or your throat or wherever you, and it's sitting there. And sometimes we're distracted and we don't feel it, but we know When we're really mindful, there it is again. And that's who I am. This despair, this worry, this whatever. And it's so we're not acknowledging the impermanence in our experience. We're actually consciously denying it. I didn't notice it, but that's just because my mindfulness wasn't good enough. If my mindfulness had been continuous, I would have known that this worry was here all the time. And in fact, it's just the reverse. If we're really continuous, we'll notice as strong as that despair, whatever is, you're really in it. It's really bad. And suddenly there's just a little thought that comes through. I wonder what's for lunch. They go, well, that's distraction. Back to the worry, you know. (laughs) That didn't count. Or we do go off on what's for lunch, and then after a few minutes of, they had pizza yesterday, so it can't be pizza today. It can't possibly be as good. Then you come, boy, I'm really a lightweight. Here I am. I could really be working with this core issue, and I'm worrying about what's for lunch. 
when really worry is who I am, you know, we want to get back there. And we don't acknowledge. It's completely changing, changing, changing. Or like I said, a lot of times the really wholesome, positive ones, contentment comes in, some samadhi, some steadiness of mind comes in, equanimity comes in. And like Guy was saying, he thinks, well, that's just what's supposed to happen, so he didn't acknowledge it. A lot of people think, well, this is some fluke. It's got nothing to do with me, because I know I'm going to be back in the despair any moment, so, okay, contentment, let's not even, you know, pay any attention to it. That's not going to hang around. And always kind of matching some idea of who we are or what we are, really leaning on some rotting old tree trunk of some idea about ourselves instead of recognizing the constant change. How many thoughts do you think you've had since you got here? Huh? Any idea? Sure, a lot of them are similar. I'll grant you that. (laughs) But none of them are the same. Each thought's a new thought. They may not be the most creative thoughts in the world, but each thought's a new thought. Can't have the same thought twice. Similar, yes, but the same, no. Just really noticing how much we deny the constant change and how when there's another thing we do which is what I think someone mentioned it in a talk a selective perception where um, this is why freedom from the known is such an important line it's like we recognize, or I think Rodney said in his talk, we open to what we're already comfortable with, you know. If you have certain political views, you're open to other people with those political views, and you can't see anything good about people that don't have those, you know. And I've seen that with myself, with some politician that I really have strong negative views about. I don't want to perceive anything wholesome or good about that person. That person couldn't have anything good going on, you know. My mind just likes to make these boxes. It's not open for discovery. It's not fresh. And so we have this selective perception all the time. It's, I'm this kind of a person. I'm a low-energy kind of a person. So if I am on retreat and I wake up in the middle of the night, my, well, I'm a low-energy kind of a person. I know that from my life. I need nine hours of sleep. If I get up now, there's no way. I'm going to be able to make it through the day because I'm a low-energy type of person. So I go, you know, force myself back to sleep. And, I'm, and this is sort of from my own experience, what I'm saying. So um, it took me years to actually say, you know what, I'm wide awake. Get up. Just get up. And <laughs> I'd find when I get up, not only I was a little, a little sleepy, so what? I get up and I, I love the early morning hours. You don't, I don't need as much sleep when I'm on retreat. How am I going to find that out? If I can, no, I'm a low energy type of person and this is what I know and this is how it is. Nothing's ever the same. No two days are the same. No situation's the same. So other ways we deny impermanence that someone mentioned, you know, how we try to recreate an experience. Recreate that, you know, really concentrated sitting. Recreate that perfect walking recreate that misty early morning so we leap out of bed and run out to be outside at exactly the same time because we had this really nice emotion when we were there. But this time, of course, there's no way you can have the same experience twice. The conditions are different. The day's going to be different misty. Your mental states will definitely be different because the day before you walked out, open, no expectations, just present. 
Today you're running out filled with greed and hurrying and festive. Oh, let me feel this nice. Oh, I don't think it's going to happen. You know, it's going to be different. There's no way the conditions are ever all the same. So what's the suffering in that? Trying to deny the shifting, the change. Another thing is noticing, not trying to make something go away. That's just aversion and wanting. But noticing when something's really gone. Like, for example, a strong emotion. And then when it's gone and we think, well, I just didn't notice it. Try actually noticing that now I'm not feeling despair, I'm feeling hunger. Try noticing that now there was contentment and that's gone and now there's frustration. Just notice. This, I know this is going to sound silly, but somehow this was a big insight, insight for me. I was eating in, um, on a retreat not that long ago, very mindfully. I was quite quiet and slowed down, chewing, chewing, that little burst of flavor. And if you really stay with it, you see the flavor's gone like that, and then you're just masticating kind of tasteless <laughs> stuff. And you want to swallow it and get another bite of flavor. But I was just staying there and swallowed. And I saw how, usually, when I'm like that, paying attention, I swallow, and there's sensations here, and it's going down. And in my mind, the concept is, this is the food, and it's going down. And there's a whole concept of continuity with that. But this time, I was just staying there, and I swallowed. I was in my mouth, and I swallowed, and the food was so gone. I mean, it was really gone. There was a sensation here, but that wasn't the food. That was just sensation here. You know, I didn't have, hold on to the concept. I know this sounds silly, but that sense of the complete goneness of it. I couldn't find the food. It was gone. It's really... <laughs> we have to take the little insights we get. <laughs> but it, it really spread out. It really... Just notice that kind of thing. And just stay there (laughs) with the goneness. Also, you can notice beginnings. (laughs) So, So meeting experience with this freshness, this beginner's mind, that's actually what mindfulness practice is whether it's the breath or the steps or sensation or emotion and all the instructions are just different ways of trying to help us to, in any particular moment, just drop the concepts, drop the ideas from the past and what we want from the future and what we think should happen or will happen and just sit down, well, what's going to happen now? I know when I'm on retreat and I know I'm really dropping in is when I sit down and I just go, okay, let's see what happens. You know, no prior preconceptions. Not that, what Roddy was talking about, that leaning into the future, leaning in or dragging the past after us. This is from um, from the Buddha, a particular sutta called One Fortunate Attachment. He actually, there's three suttas of the same verse. He says, let not a person revive the past or on the future build her hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let her see each presently arisen state. Let her know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. 
And then it goes on, and one of the, uh, the monks is giving an exposition of what that means. And it's pretty much what you'd think, but I just want to say. He says, what does it mean to not revive the past? It doesn't mean we can't think about the past. It doesn't mean we're so in the moment that we have no idea what our name is. You know? So if you'll say, if everything's changing, then you're just open to the moment. How are you going to find your way home? You know? How do you even remember how to get to the dining room? That's our mind just, you know, going through its trips. It's not like that. We know. We can remember the past, well, less and less, but we can, <laughs> we can just somewhat. But as this monk said, reviving the past in the way the Buddha is talking about means one's consciousness becomes bound up with desire and lust when thinking about any particular aspect. In the past, my body was like this, or I had this mood, or I had this form. It becomes bound up with desire and lust. And because of that, you delight in it, your consciousness shrinks, and that's what he's calling reviving the past. We're bound to it, and we suffer. The same thing about on the future, building one's hopes. It's not, of course we make plans for the future, or we might have a thought about the future. That in itself is no problem. That's not suffering. But again, when one's consciousness becomes bound up with desire, with attachment about building one's hopes on this is what's going to be in the future, then one becomes bound to it. One becomes suffering. And what does it mean, invincible, in regard to presently arisen states? And I love that translation, invincible. It means, again, one's consciousness, one's awareness, one's presence is not bound up with desire, attachment, aversion, lust about this presently arisen state. In other words, we're simply, totally meeting this moment just as it is with totality of presence but no agenda. No agenda. If you try to think, how can I live like that? That's too much. If you try and just experience that in a moment, that's not too much. That's totally experienceable, and we all experience it many, many moments. In that moment of presence with whatever it is, sadness, hearing, sensation, contentment, doesn't matter what's happening, that moment of pure presence without the being bound by reactivity or fear, we are invincible, invincible in terms of unshakable, in terms of it's all workable. There's no suffering, there's no problem. There's nothing else one needs to do. Invincible. That's really a very powerful statement. So this, this willingness, just this willingness to begin to explore the possibility of the perception of impermanence, the, the possibility of instability, not thinking about it, but bringing this, this pure perception, this freshness, this innocence of attention and totality to, to just this moment, just this moment, this willingness not to know, to recognize that each moment of mindfulness is just like a stepping into the unknown. That's what we're practicing, really, opening to the unknown. 
that doesn't, that doesn't leave us feeling bereft. You know, that doesn't leave us feeling like, oh my God, life is unbearable. It actually opens us to enormous, you know, appreciation of the beauty, of the wonder, of the mystery. It doesn't mean it's always beautiful or lovely, but just the, the wonder of life, the sensitivity to be so present when we don't know what's going to happen, isn't it a miracle? Whatever it is. And it doesn't mean we can't respond appropriately. Actually, we can be much more flexible because we don't have all idea, our ideas about what should be happening. You know, we've already decided ahead of time what we're going to say and what, like in the interviews, right? You know what you're going to say and what we're going to answer and it went back and forth and you already had a better interview before you even came to see us. And, <laughs> No, that would work better anyway. But, you know, it's never like that. Anything you've ever planned, has it ever really gone that way? You know, I used to sit on retreat and I'd be having all these fantasies of what would happen when I went home and saw my partner and this and that and they'd say this and I'd do that and then the next mint, the next sitting would be a different way and a different way. Then I'd realize, okay, whatever I've thought, I know, the one thing I know is none of that's what's going to happen, you know? Wasting our time, we don't know. So when we're open and present, we just appreciate anything, and the appropriate response is much more accessible. It's really such a different way to live, just in the immediacy of now, without dragging in the past, leaning in the future. I just want to close with a poem by Billy Collins that I really like, because it gives that feeling to me. It's called Aimless Love. This morning, as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren, and later in the day with a mouse, the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress, still at her machine in the tailor's window, and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, without suspicion or silence on the telephone. The love of the chestnut, the jazz cap in one hand on the wheel, no lust, no slam of the door, the love of the miniature orange tree, the clean white shirt, the hot evening shower, the highway that cuts across Florida. No waiting, no huffiness or rancor, just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water, and for the dead mouse still dressed in its light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, ready for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap, so patient and soluble, so at home in this pale green soap dish. I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. So let's just sit quietly for a minute.
Nisargadatta Maharaj. Be quiet, free from the obsession with what next. In the silence, something may be heard, which is ordinarily too fine and subtle for perception. Free from the obsession with what next. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.